Good morning. <laughs> I'll keep asking until you answer properly. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but when Dylan said, if you don't know what an app is, or have never used one, he looked right at me. <laughs> With a little grin on his face. It's a private joke. I'm the least technologically savvy person you'll ever know. Well, isn't it great here to be together in, air in church today? Isn't it wonderful? Feels so good here. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. The last verse in Hebrews chapter 6 and then on through verse 10 in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 6, verse uh, 20. It's kind of an awkward way to start, but you'll get it later. And then all the way up through verse 10 in chapter 7. Uh, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. God, we thank you for this uh, tremendous picture of Jesus, the high priest Melchizedek. Father, help it to be clear to us today who Melchizedek is, what he represents in our Lord Jesus, and Lord, um, how it applies to us as we walk out the doors today. And thank you, Lord, for this nice, cool place. But more importantly, thank you for the fact that we are at your church in its local form here on 68th Avenue. And you have a future for us and a purpose for us. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing uh, to make that happen. And uh, all the way from just coming here and shaking hands to bringing us our new pastor in your time. Thank you for working on our behalf. We appreciate it, Lord, and bless, bless us in this word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, the best way that we can understand this passage for ourselves is to understand the historical background first. It's real important, I think. And then the reason why it was written, and then the components of the passage itself. And for the historical background and the reason for it, I want to use a very useful story and some commentary from one of the commentaries that I've been using in my study of this passage from R. Kent Hughes' commentary on Hebrews. 
And uh, I hope this will clarify the historical background so we can push through the rest of the text. But on June 27, 1976, uh, armed operatives for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised the 12 crew members of an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers, hijacking it to a destination unknown. The plane was tracked heading for Central Africa, where indeed it did land under the congenial auspices of Ugandan President Idi Amin. And there it remained apparently secure at Entebbe Airport where the hijackers spent the next seven days preparing for their next move. The hijackers were, by all estimations, in the driver's seat. However, 2,500 miles away, in Tel Aviv, three Israeli C-130 Hercules transports secretly boarded a deadly force of Israeli commandos who within hours attacked Entebbe Airport under the cover of darkness. In less than 60 minutes, the commandos rushed the old terminal, gunned down the hijackers, and rescued 110 of the 113 hostages. The next day, July 4th, Israel's premier Yitzhak Rabin triumphantly declared the mission will become a legend, which it surely has. Israel's resolve and stealth in liberating her people is admired by her friends and begrudged by her enemies. Actually, Israel's resolve is nothing new because the same quality can be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation in the prowess of their father Abraham. The kidnappers in his day were a coalition of four Canaanite kings headed by King Chedorlaomer, who attacked the Transjordan, defeating the city-states of Sodom and her neighbors and carrying off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. And that's, you find this in Genesis chapter 14. Undaunted, Abraham recruited 318 men, proto-commandos, from his own household and took off in hot pursuit until he closed in on the kidnappers somewhere close to Damascus. And there, under the cover of night, he deployed his small forces in a surprise attack. His troops riding, I love the way he puts this, his troops uh, riding bawling camels and slavering horses bore down on the hijackers and their hostages. Deadly arrows flew in the night and bloody swords were raised gleaming in the dusty moonlight and four kings were put to flight. The Genesis account gives this Entebbe-like summary of Abraham's success. Quote, then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Genesis 14, 16. Abraham could be formidable. It was not wise to mess with Father Abraham. So when Abraham returned to his home after the slaughter of kings, he was a hero at the pinnacle of his um, military success. Can you see him proudly astride his lumbering camel, smeared with the dirt and blood of battle, leading 318 proud men plus Lot and all the captives and all the plunder through Jerusalem? If so, you have the feel necessary to begin to appreciate Abraham's strange, mystic encounter with a shadowy figure of immense importance. And his name was Melchizedek the priest king of Salem, kind of comes out of the, the fog and meets Abraham there. It's, it's, it's kind of a mysterious, kind of cool picture. Anyway, 
we have that uh, account here in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, bought out bread and wine, common meal, and he was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, professor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's the only uh, historical mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament other than Psalm 110, verse 4. And yet Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, allowed Melchizedek to bless him and give him and gave him a tenth of everything that he brought back. You following so far? Because this is important. Okay. That was around 2000 BC, and for a millennium, there's no mention at all of Melchizedek, not even in retrospect. And then in the 10th century BC, when the psalmist David was king of Israel, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this prophetic word The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And who is he talking to in Psalm 110, verse 4? You're a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that would be our Savior, Jesus. Okay? It's this prophecy. In the likeness of Melchizedek, he would be both priest and king. Also, his priesthood would last forever. And like Melchizedek, he would be appointed directly by God. It was all divinely guaranteed. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. What an intriguing prophecy, writes uh, Hughes. God was going to establish a totally new priesthood. Imagine for a moment that you are the writer of Hebrews writing to encourage the soon-to-be-persecuted Jewish church. Now we bring it up to us where we're at right now in Hebrews. Okay, the soon-to-be-persecuted Jewish church. Also imagine yourself reflecting both on Melchizedek's history and this prophecy. And then you make the connection. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Further, you are the first person in history to make the connection. You begin to muse and pray and everything falls into place. And now in Hebrews 7, you present what you have learned as a means of encouragement to this storm-tossed church. There's no teaching like it anywhere. This is, as we sometimes say today, heavy. It kind of dates when that commentary was written. But it is. It's heavy. And really, what I want to do is I want to take all of that and bring it together into a nutshell and tell you what this, these 11 verses are all about. It's all about Jesus. What we're going to talk about today, you may think, what, what? But it, it's all about Jesus, okay, for this storm-tossed church, okay? It's all about the superiority of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And there can be no more valuable study for you and I today in our, as I said last week, in our quickly devolving world. When I say quickly, it's devolving quickly, isn't it? Wow, it's just striking how quickly it's just going down in the twos. So in a nutshell, this is what I think this is about. That Melchizedek, the high, mysterious high priest, is better than Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, and that Jesus is infinitely better than Melchizedek and everything else. And they need to know that, this storm-tossed church, this beaten-up church 
heading into more persecution than they've had in the past. They need to know the superiority of Jesus, and so do we. That's what the whole book is really all about. Why? Well, again, for these persecuted Hebrew believers, uh, they're going to be tempted to go back to the easier path of Judaism. It's just a bunch of rules. Rules are so much easier than the Christian life. Rules you can measure. Rules keep you uh, righteous with your own strength. Rules are so much easier than Jesus. They're not better, but they're easier. And we can measure ourselves against people by obeying certain rules. And they're thinking, you know, this is really hard. This is hard. This following Jesus stuff is really hard. I'm tired. I'm really tired. You know, I think I'll just go get back to that set of rules. I can get pats on the back for obeying rules. And I can feel better about myself for obeying rules. And I can compare myself to another person by obeying rules. That's so much easier. And so the writer here just says, no, 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 no. Abraham is the patriarch of the Jews, but Melchizedek, this mysterious high priest, is better than Abraham. And Jesus is infinitely better than Melchizedek. So why go back? Why go back to a set of rules and religion and rituals and formulas and systems? Why? They can't fulfill you. They can't give you eternal life. And that's the same message that that we need to have today. Why go back? Not just to Judaism, because other than me, I don't know that anybody else came from that, but to anything else. People leave the church and go back to stuff all the time. I think it's... If anybody here has been a pastor or in Christian ministry, isn't that one of the most heartbreaking things when you see someone get on fire for the Lord and then slowly go back? It's, it's, heart, it's heart-wrenching. And so he's saying, don't go back. Jesus is better. He's, he's superior than anything else. Don't go back to your former religion or your former way of life. Don't do it. Stick with it. Jesus is, is better. And so we need to really uh, understand the greatness of Jesus so we don't stop walking with him and persevering in him because we're going to be tempted and and go through trials maybe more and more as time goes on in our Western world and also because of the times we live in right now. Um, Right now, Jesus is probably less popular in some quarters of uh, the Western world than ever before. And I'll say this, so you can, you can argue with me about it. I don't think Jesus has been more irrelevant to a secular culture in terms of the United States than ever before. People look at us and go, that is the most irrelevant lifestyle I've ever seen. Why would you want to do that? And so we need to, we need to really understand the betterness and the superiority of Jesus. And just to be straight up with you, I think... The most blessed life is Jesus. Did you ever, no, I'm not going to say did you ever, when you decide that you're going to sin, doesn't it look good on the front end? Otherwise, why would you do it, right? Why would you, I'm not going to name a grocery list, but why would you say or think or do or act that way? Why would you, why would you? Because it looks good. And then what happens? bad if you're a Christian there's conviction and confession and repentance and starting over again Um, 
Did you know that every time we surrender to a sin, I'm including myself, obviously, we repeat the whole process of the, garden of, the fall in the Garden of Eden? It's the same thing every single time. It looks good. It looks tasty. We bite. The, the, the universe falls, and then God restores. Every single area where we sin is the same as what happened in the Garden of Eden in principle. And so when we put Jesus as the better one, the superior one, we sin less because we're more in love with God. We love him, okay? And I think also uh, learning about uh, Jesus here through Melchizedek is a big help to you and I in daily life. Um, I think people maybe, well, it'll be clear in chapter 10, but I want you to understand that when I say that Jesus is the best thing that a spouse can do for their marriage or a mother can do for her, or father can do for their child, or grandfather, grandmother do for their grandchildren, or a single adult can do for themselves, or a student, or an employer, or an employee, or a retiree, that getting closer to Jesus is the best thing you can do for the role that God has you in right now. I'm not just um, trying to attract you to my sermon or to make promises that, that God doesn't actually follow through. I mean it. I'm, it's a, to me as serious as a heart attack. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate life. I do. And we create a weekend for this and a seminar for that and a workshop for that and all these things, and they're good, and book and the, the, the latest top 10 Christian book, and they're all good. Give me Jesus. Closer we get to Jesus, the more uh, hmm, effective we are in the role that God play, puts us in where we're at right now. Amen? You'd be surprised how that's actually true. I can't dwell on that too much, but it's wonderful. And when we, when we see and know Jesus better, that he's superior and, 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 and better, we want to share him with the lost world. It's just a natural thing. Evangelism should be, it's not always, but it should be more natural than it is. We're all scared to share our faith sometimes. But when you know Jesus and how better he is and superior to anything else, then, then we share because we want people to know him. All right. Now I'll give you the title of the message this morning. After that 20-something minute introduction. Don't worry, I'll get you out of here. I promise. I promise. Thank you. How much do I owe you for that? They said no rush. But isn't this good? It's so good to take something that looks so cryptic and so complicated and then squeeze it out and the Holy Spirit pops up Jesus in his betterness and we go, okay, I get it. That's, all, that's what the writer's trying to do with the Hebrew believers and that's what he's trying to do with us this morning. The betterness, the superiority of Jesus. All right, so the title is Melchizedek, a meaningful picture of Christ. Melchizedek, a meaningful picture of Christ. And what we're going to do is look at what Jesus and Melchizedek have in common, their similarities, but how vastly they were different, specifically because Melchizedek was only a picture of Christ. 
And through Mel- the lens of Melchizedek, we're going to see Jesus maybe in some new and refreshing ways. And that will have, Lord willing, the same effect as it, the writer one for the he- Hebrew believers that were kind of wavering and waffling. And I'm not saying it's our, our whole congregation. I'm not saying it's half. But if you were here this morning, you said, man, you know, I'm just like tired. Maybe I'm just going to pull out just a little bit or coast. Uh, this is not a world that you want to coast in. You want to be white hot for Jesus. So do I. And we'll learn some good theology as we go through here again. So let's look at the ways that what the priest Melchizedek was a picture of, of Jesus. Number one, Melchizedek and Jesus are similar because they're both kings. They're both kings. Back in verse 1 of chapter 7, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. King. He was a king. He came out as Abraham came home from battle with all his bounty and Abraham tithed 10% to him. And he was, and Melchizedek was a king of Salem, which later became what? Jerusalem. And I looked at, I tried to find this. Man, maybe you're better at it than I am, but um, at that time, the, the historians estimate that the population was between 800 and 3,500 of Jerusalem. I guess that would have been a big city at that day. I don't know. That's just what they say. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem. But Jesus is king also. But not of a city that was between 800 and 3,500. The Bible says very clearly that Jesus uh, is not only king of Jerusalem, will be, is, or Israel, the country, or the world, but he's the king of all creation, the entire universe. Jesus Christ is a king like Melchizedek, but he is the king of the universe, not a small Middle Eastern city that didn't even have its full name yet. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it's interesting, says, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 19, 16 is an interesting, I wish I could read the whole passage, but because this is just a striking picture of Jesus returning in judgment, but in verse 16 it says, um, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thigh meant strength in that culture. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then, of course, for me, the gold standard verse on this is in the first chapter of Colossians, okay, in verses 15 and 16. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Jesus is the king of kings. Melchizedek was a king, but Jesus is the king of kings. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? Aren't you glad you're on the right side? Because when he comes back, and everybody on planet Earth is going to see on his robe and on his thigh, king of kings and Lord of Lords. Secondly, Melchizedek, and and Melchizedek is a picture of that. Melchizedek and Jesus are similar because both are priests. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 7, it says that Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. Okay? 
as Abraham comes back from this battle where he smears these four kings, um, he, he's met by Melchizedek, Abraham, when he comes back. He's met by Melchizedek, and he gives uh, a tithe or a tenth of his uh, bounty, his spoils, to Melchizedek. And that's a picture, a picture or type, if you want to use that word, because ultimately Jesus Christ is our perfect risen high priest, and this is the part that I think all of us should go out of here maybe with a tear in our eye and a lump in our throat, kind of walking maybe a couple inches off the ground. He's our high priest. Not just some Melchizedek, as great as he was, but the king of kings and the lord of lords. The ruler of the universe is our personal high priest. Now you say, well, why are you saying that? Well, he it says in the scriptures, and we can just go up to chapter 7 and verse uh, 24 and 25. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Human, high priests, or human priests die. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Okay, here it comes. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I don't get it. How can Jesus always intercede for me personally and yet for all the millions, if not billions of Christians? But it's true. Jesus, when, when Mitch messes up, Jesus is there before God interceding for me. When I'm weak and tired, it says that he's interceding for me. When I'm maybe being a little rebellious, snotty, or impatient, he is interceding for me and convicting me. We have a high priest that is continually interceding for us and, for, and, and pleading the blood, if you will, of his cross. I don't know if pleading is the word, but, you, but, but using the blood of his cross before the Father to say, I shed this perfect blood and that sin is already taken care of. And the Father says, I know that was my idea and your idea, and isn't it great that we see them perfect and not under uh, condemnation? He, uh, what, uh, there's other, verse, other um, translations I think are so good. He ever liveth to make intercession for them? I, but you know what? He's doing that. For, he'll do it for you today. He's interceding. There is the blood. There is, there is, there is my love. There, I'm interceding for them. They're tired. They're, they're, they're stumbling. I'll intercede for them. Mel Melchizedek is just a picture of Jesus. And then third, Melchizedek and Jesus are similar because both are kings of righteousness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And as one of God's temporary high priests, he could offer temporary sacrificial righteousness for sinners, but it's not permanent. It doesn't last. You always keep having to do that over and over again in the sacrificial system. But Jesus is the reality of divine righteousness in all of its respects. When it says that, when we say that Jesus is the king of righteousness, it means that he himself is the reality of divine righteousness in all of its respect, aspects for you and I. That's pretty exciting. Um, again, looking up in chapter 7, verse 26. 
Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, set pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Christ is righteous. He's, 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 he's righteous. Melchizedek is a picture of that because he's called the king of righteousness, but it's only a temporary picture. Jesus is the reality of divine righteousness. When I preach this kind of thing, you know what comes into my mind a lot is there's no other system of belief like that on planet Earth. That in God incarnate came to this earth in perfect, born of Mary, Virgin Mary, um, in embryonic form all the way up to a baby and to a, an adult sinless and crucified for our sins, buried, rose the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, took on his glory before he left heaven and is perfect, right, perfectly righteous. And here's the good news, everybody. Puts his righteousness over us and inside of us. Yeah, hallelujah, somebody is getting it. And behind all of this stuff, you guys, is the, um, the writer trying to say to these waffling, wavering, uh, uh, some believers who are saying, you know, I'm kind of tired of this. He's saying, what's better out there? Religion? Partying? When you can actually be indwelt with and covered with uh, the righteousness of Christ, who in very nature is righteous and gives us his covering and his indwelling. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Then in him we might become the righteousness of God. The moment you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you became the righteousness of God. We don't always feel that or act that way, but it's true. And I'm fine, listen, you got, I'm finding more and more that I have to grab what's true whether I feel it or not. How about you? I mean, your emotions aren't always going to say, you're righteous. Because Satan fights you every step of the way for that. He doesn't want you to know. I think 1 Corinthians 1.30 is really just, golly, it's one of the greatest verses on this. I, I, I could just, it's so good. 1 Corinthians 1.30 is because of him that is the Father, is this up behind me on the screen? Good. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, for us. Doesn't say Melchizedek. He couldn't become righteousness for us, but he's a picture because he's a king of righteousness. Become for us our, oh, excuse me, I'll, I'll start from again. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, the Father has done that, who has become for us. And there's a whole you know, beautiful grocery list here. Wisdom, and we are making decisions in this church that have long reper repercussions. He'll become our wisdom for that. And personal decisions. I don't have to, I don't have to yank it up, right? It, he'll give us wisdom for our decisions. All, all, any decision, especially as we, as we look for our, our new pastor. But, but, but it says, I, see, I'm, I'm going off on all kinds of tangents here because it's so good. And I could preach for an hour, two hours on this. It's so good. And I'm going to, too. That's what I'm going to do. No. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us 
Wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. That, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. If you're a Christian and you're boasting, I would ask you, what have you done? What gives you the right to boast about anything? Especially wisdom, holiness, righteousness, and redemption. Now, you, we, boasting doesn't have a place in the church. Me better than you doesn't have a place in the church because Christ's righteousness applied to us divinely, supernaturally through the Holy Spirit is our source of value and worth and significance and meaning and identity. It's beautiful because that, then it doesn't depend on us, amen? Doesn't matter how many, it, you, don't, you don't have to memorize verses, although you should. You don't have to attend church, although you should. You don't have to ad infinitum because it, it's a done deal it's over it's christ's righteousness and here i go on another tangent when you go back to the spouse and the parenting and the grandparenting and the employer and the employee and all the, the single adult uh, the 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 uh, junior high kid the the high school kid and if you understand that psychologically you are so far ahead of the game in the world today because it's Christ doing it all for you. Being it all for you. It's psychologically healing as well as spiritually healing. Hebrews is one of the most psychologically healing books, maybe the most healing book in the entire Bible. Because we can rest in Christ and his righteousness. I'm going to make a statement go on to number four. Um, and by the way, no other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, JWs, Hinduism, none of these come even close to this because they don't give you righteousness. They say you got to earn it, and hopefully you'll have enough, maybe. I don't want to live in maybes, do you? I don't like maybes. I like certainties. What a great faith we have. All right? And that's the whole point here. Don't go back to junk, stupidity. Okay, here's the statement I want to make, then we'll go to number four. Once we receive Christ... And this is actually original with me. I didn't steal this from anybody. Once we receive Christ, we cannot, nor will we ever appear anything other than perfectly righteous before God ever again. Amen. Chew on that baby for a while. That's why it's so important for us to know more about Jesus and what he's done for us. It positively affects every aspect of our lives while we are in this world. Amen. Pass the potatoes. Number four. Um, Melchizedek and Jesus are similar, although Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus, because both are kings of peace. Verse two. Yes, I'm at verse two. I know we're going to ten. Don't worry, I'll get you out of here. Because it says there's an also there in verse uh, three. There's an also there. Also, King of Salem means king of peace. King of Salem means king of peace. So it kind of has a dual meaning there. Melchizedek's name, king of Salem, also, verse 2, carries the meaning of king of peace. But what Melchizedek did as a human priest to help men gain temporary peace with God served only as a picture of Jesus who gives us eternal peace with God. Um, 
He's called the Prince of Peace, right? We do that every Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, he brings us peace. One of my favorite verses, Romans 5, 1. Um, I quote in a lot of my verses in the King James because that's what I did the majority of my memory work when I was younger. I don't know how similar it is, but we'll go with that. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, peace with God. God, any one of these things is a whole sermon, but God no longer holds anything against you or me. And, that, and, that, and he never will. And that's good news. That, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me go, okay, then I can just pretty much do what I want. That makes me go, God, please let me not misuse that wonderful, wonderful peace that you've given me with you. Don't let me step on it. And that's where I hate sin because it, it takes God for granted. And then Jesus brings us the peace of God. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then Jesus, and I think what this is important to say before we go to our last one here. Jesus, uh, when he returns, he's going to institute world peace. Not world peas, as you see on the bumper sticker. World peace peace. Listen to this well-known scripture. I think it might be on the wall of the UN, like they're going to solve any problems. But listen to this. He, Jesus, will judge the, between the nations. Isaiah 2.4 will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. When Christ returns, it says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And he's going to mediate the disputes in the millennial kingdom. There will be world peace. Isn't that great? And you know what? You, if you look it up and just Google it, there's been just a handful of years where there hasn't been a war somewhere on this planet of, of the thousands of years of existence. Okay, we better move to the last one. Melchizedek and Jesus are similar because both are without beginning or ending. And Melchizedek is a picture of that. That's what this whole passage is about. Seeing Jesus through the lens of Melchizedek. Abraham is great, but Melchizedek is greater. But Jesus is infinitely greater than Melchizedek. Well, let's look at verse 3. Without father, or he's talking about Melchizedek here. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek is described as without parents, without a genealogy, without a birth, and without a death. Abraham, as Abraham returns, Melchizedek Kizedek, simply appears as if out of nowhere, bringing a meal of bread and wine and pronouncing a blessing over Abraham, who responds by giving Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of his recent uh, after his recent battle, we would expect at that point in time to hear about Melchizedek's family background, which was huge in that culture, but not a word. Not a word of it. Now, we all know he had it. He had a, a mom and a dad and maybe siblings and a genealogy, but there's not a mention of it, okay? He'd been born and he had family, he died, 
But as a biblical figure here, he had no recorded beginning or end. And he is a picture of our Lord Jesus. In his true nature, Jesus, the Son of God, is without actual beginning or ending. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Never had a beginning, never had an ending. It says here that Melchizedek, or, 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 or Christ, uh, I'll just read the verse and be easier. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God. Melchizedek is a picture of the Son of God who has no beginning and no ending. How many believe that pastors can have crises? By half. My last sermon here, when I step down and our new pastor comes, will be how to treat your new pastor. This will be my one, two, three, four, fifth time I'll preach that sermon. Pastors have crises. They aren't bulletproof. You need to pray for them, him, when he comes. And I had a crisis. I didn't understand. Well, I understood, and I know the verses, but I needed a fresh perspective on Jesus and his deity. I just did, and I was running into a brick wall. I just needed I need to, I want to, maybe crisis is over-dramatizing, but man, I just needed something to move me closer to the, all, the truth of that. We, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And I was reading through the book of Hebrews, and I came to that verse, and God decided to set off a nuclear bomb in my brain. Because I read that, and it said, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, that's Melchizedek, like the Son of God. And I understood to the degree I can. Jesus had no beginning and he had no ending. He is God. So much greater than Melchizedek. Why, 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 why would you want to go back to Abraham or Melchizedek or a world. Why would you want to return? Why would you want to bail out? Who's going to be greater than that? Amen? Amen. Yeah, hang with me here. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying, okay, to get done with this, but it's so good. Now the writer finishes off the, the passage, and his argument is what we've been talking about all along, that no one is greater or better to believe in and to persevere in and to finish life with than Jesus. No matter what trials and temptations we encounter, how much opposition in our culture we, we encounter. And to prove this, he demonstrates that Melchizedek himself was greater than Abraham, the father of the Jews, and that Jesus infinitely surpasses even Melchizedek, who is better than Abraham. So don't go back to whatever your former way of life was. Stick with Jesus. Verses 4 through 10, and I'll, I'll summarize, and then we'll be dismissed. Uh, somehow I think you'd be happy if I preached for two hours so you don't have to go back outside, but you got to go home sometime. Just think how great he was, even verse 4. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, 
The law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is their brothers. That's how they got paid, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Melchizedek, Melchizedek died, or Levi died. Melchizedek lives as a picture of Christ. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Perfectly clear? It's a tough one. But let me just, let me just read to you it's kind of what I wrote to myself because I really had to try to figure out what this meant. Okay, here it goes. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe of the plunder in verse 4 when he came back. This showed that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. So far, so good. Then in verse 5, we're told that the priests who were descendants of the tribe of Levi were to collect a tenth from the people, their Jewish brothers, who are descendants of Abraham, which is how the Levitical priests got paid. Then in verses 6 and 7, we're told that this man, Melchizedek, didn't descend from the tribe of Levi, yet collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promise. That's Abraham. This fulfills the principle that the lesser person is always blessed by the greater. Melchizedek here. Verse 8 contrasts the eventual death of the Levitical priests who collect the tenth or the tithe from the people with the other priest mentioned here, Melchizedek, who collected a tenth from Abraham as being perpetually alive, verse 8, declared to be living, a picture of the eternal Christ. Then in verses 9 and 10, one could even say that Levi, who collects the tenth from the people, is actually paying it through Abraham to Melchizedek because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, Abraham. The idea is that Levi is paying uh, tithes through Ab- uh, Levi is paying tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, who is a picture of Christ, who is eternally better. So why go back to something less? Dead religion. This would have made perfect sense to them who, had, believe it or not, this would have been perfectly clear to those people. It would have. They would have. Oh yeah, 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 right. Melchizedek's better than Abraham. Jesus better than Melchizedek. Let's go on to, let's go have our potluck. I hope you understand that. And, uh, but it's all in a nutshell about Jesus. So let's, I'm going to conclude here with a, a, a quote by Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on Hebrews. I think he puts it real clearly. He says, what a power, powerful argument for the author's waffling audience. Remember, the original recipients of this letter had been tempted to back away from their complete trust in the Messiah as their great high priest and find significance again in the Levitical priesthood with its continual sacrifices and rituals. But the writer's point is that there was another priestly order superior to the Levitical line fathered by Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. It was the order of Melchizedek, a king priest who foreshadowed a still greater future king and priest, Jesus Christ. And this, this affects you and I every day. Every day. It's all about Jesus. There's absolutely, positively nothing better 
now or to go back to than what we already have in Jesus, amen? I mean, there's nothing better, nothing better, okay? No matter how tempting it is and no matter how, how hot the trials and difficulties are, there's nothing better. So my word to you is keep persevering, keep your priorities straight, keep your Christian perspective until he returns. There's nothing better out there, religious or secular, there's nothing or no one better for us personally as it relates to our children, grandchildren, marriages, jobs, or church than staying focused on Jesus. Nothing can be more help to us in those areas than the superior, better Jesus. And then this last sentence. If Melchizedek could bless Abraham, how much more is a son of God ready to enable to bless those who draw near to God through him. If we want God's blessing, we should seek them in Christ. Because 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, as many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. What do you need from God? Eternal life? Yes. Forgiveness of sins? Yes. Inner peace? Yes. He'll give it. Hope? Yes. Joy, yes. In the, joy in the midst of trials, yes. Difficulties, yes. Grace to endure, yes. Victory over sin, yes. Healing from past wounds, yes. I could go on. Draw near to him. He's better. He's superior. Don't go back. Don't go away. Don't dabble in other things. Go to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this long but powerful passage that focuses us on Jesus. Jesus. Rivet us on Jesus. All that he is, all that he's done, all that we are in him. What a blessing. Thank you for that. In his precious name, amen.